Fangraphs Audio. I'm Carson Sestouli, and I am joined, as I am now every week, it seems, uh, by the curator of our fine Q&A series, Mr. David Lorla. David, are you there? I am here, Carson. Uh, David, we have now the opportunity to listen to some audio uh, with some gentlemen who are associated with the Mariners. Uh, now, one of them is a player, but the other uh, has a different position. Who, who are we going to start with? Who do you want to tell us about first? I think, Carson, we should start with uh, Mariners uh, catcher John Jaso, uh, former Tampa Bay Ray. And um, Jaso is, I mean, he's one of my favorite people in baseball. And um, I think he's a great subject here because he's sort of an old-fashioned moneyball guy in the sense that he gets on base a lot and wasn't really highly regarded out of the draft. Um, he's now playing a little bit with the Mariners. Eric Wedge probably isn't playing him quite enough, but we'll get into that a little bit with my conversation with John. And we'll get into it even more when we speak to um, Jeff Baker, who is a Mariners beat writer. Uh, Jeff and I talk about a lot of things Mariner, mostly Jeff speaking, um, covering a variety of subjects of a team that is interesting and, frankly, not very good. Right, and perhaps surprisingly, or, or a little bit surprisingly, given that the front office is generally, um, or at least, you know, at least has been pretty highly esteemed. Well, they are highly esteemed, but as Jeff and I touch on early in the interview, it's not necessarily the front office's fault. Jack Sorensic, I think, is a very good general manager, and I'm sure Jeff feels that as well, but they're a bit hamstrung with uh, with payroll, and they have made a few mistakes, certainly. They've sign some people to long contracts who haven't panned out, and maybe that is the front office's fault. But they have to go forward from here, and, um, yeah, it's a, it's a tough road. If you're an Mariners fan listening to this, you probably know this already, that the team has uh, some work, work in front of them. Yeah. Well, if you are a Mariners fan listening to this, uh, congratulations to you for having summoned up the will uh, to <laughs> even to, to participate um, and something like this or participate in your daily life? Because it might be hard otherwise. Um, a lot of things in life are, are hard, Carson. I think the hardest thing I've done recently is uh, finally join the Twitterverse. Listeners can find me at David Laurel QA, I thought was a good uh David Laurel QA. David Laurel QA, yeah. and, and we're, we're about to see you in action, queuing and then receiving some A's. Is that right? That that's the plan, Carson. And um, with no further ado, let's go to uh, what I guess we can call a Mariners doubleheader. A Mariners doubleheader with uh, Mariners catcher John Jaso and Mariners beat writer Jeff Baker. My guest is John Jaso, Mariners catcher. John, how you got to be the Mariners catcher is actually an interesting story. Not so much the immediate arrival in Seattle, but the fact that you actually walked on to, to a junior college team. Yeah, I, uh, I mean, where I came from originally playing high school, there wasn't much in like the scouting, I don't know, field up there, and definitely wasn't a place to get picked up or really, I don't know, learn that baseball could be used as something more than just a game. Uh, it kind of took me going down to San Diego, a bigger population, a higher, higher density of you know kids playing the game, and and the competitive level kind of increasing to uh, make me realize that you know baseball could be used as as uh, as a greater tool. And 
I mean, once I once I got down to junior college, I uh, I wanted to go on to a four-year school and you know major in math, and the only way I could do that was through a scholarship. I couldn't pay for it any other way, so baseball was going to be the the tool for for me to get an education. So you started out in Northern California, went to San Diego, played junior college ball, and you ended up signing rather than then going to San Diego State. How did that, how did that happen? Yeah, I ended up signing instead of going. Um, I wasn't really, I don't know, the idea of playing professional baseball didn't really hit me until, you know, I was um, confronted by a, a professional scout, and he asked me, you know, did I ever consider playing professional baseball or, or you know, if I was drafted, if I was, you know, you know signed to play. And, you know, right there, I was like, I just told him, yeah. I mean, I, I really I really hadn't. Uh, I just wanted to go to a four-year school. But, you know, I talked to the scout more and more. And, and I this is a Tampa Bay Rays. This is a, yeah, Tampa Bay Devil Rays at the, yeah, at the time, scout. And, you know, I went to a couple workouts with him. And, and uh and I learned about the, the rounds and, like, the type of money that you get in the rounds. And also uh, talking with a friend of my grandfather's who, who is a, who's an agent, um, he kind of, you know, educated me on, on money that I could get and also uh, the schooling that I could get through as well if baseball didn't, didn't work out. So it kind of helped my decision go towards uh, signing to play professional ball. You have two interesting stories from workouts. I know you caught a pretty pretty notable pitcher. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was a workout, went up to L.A., and there was a lot of, uh, a lot of baseball talent up there, um, a lot of prospects, and, and it was my first time kind of being around that kind of a workout. And, uh, and the scout that uh, had interest in me, he had originally signed Barry Zito uh, to Oakland when he was, you know, a scout for Oakland, and, and, uh, I mean, he had me catch him during that workout, and, I mean, Zito, I think, threw to, like, you know, three or four hitters, not very much, but, uh, but it was kind of a really cool experience for a young guy at a junior college who wasn't even, like, considering professional baseball to, you know, to catch Barry Zito right there. Scouts and big league organizations are big on character, and uh, you made a big impression by shagging fly balls for somebody who is not nearly as famous. Yeah, um, I mean, it was at the end of that that workout, and everybody had left or whatever, and I was taking off my gear and kind of taking my time because I had to drive all the way back down to San Diego, and uh, you know, this kid, another prospect. He, uh, he came driving up, and uh, the scout that ended up signing me, he wanted to take a look at this kid and watch him hit some BP, and, and I was the, uh, the only one left, and I just went up to him and said, like, hey, man, if, you know, if, if he wants to take some batting practice, I'll go shag fly balls. And uh, so the scout threw him batting practice, and the kid hit fly balls. I, I shagged him up, and, and uh, later on, about a year after or two years after I signed, uh, the scout ended up telling me that that was like the final like stamp of approval, really, on on you know taking me in the draft and and uh, drafting me in the 12th round. 
And Rays did then, then sign you, as you just said. You went to the New York Penn League, where you promptly hit about maybe 230, but as John Jasel always has, you had an on-base percentage over 100 points higher. Yeah, kind of, I don't know, kind of developed through uh, through minor leagues and, you know, getting a wood bat in my hands and and, uh, and just kind of, like, learning an approach, really, uh, like my approach through school, you know, I've always been trying to, like, hit the ball as hard as I can, you know, as far as I could over the fence or, or whatever, but, you know, once I got to professional baseball and I started seeing, you know, a lot of good sinker balls and split fingers became... Uh, you know, in the picture, and and uh, I learned how to like work counts and kind of get back to that fastball that you know everybody wants to hit. So it's kind of a developing process, and I think you know playing the catcher position also helped with that. And you had an OBP over 400 a few years in the minor leagues. You come up to Tampa. You're the one year you really got to play there. You were on a playoff team. And um, your on-base percentage was about 370, hitting leadoff. That's that's pretty unique. Yeah, I think you know I started off. You know, when I started off playing, I was you know hitting eighth, and sort of started gradually working my way up, like seventh and sixth. And the uh, on-base percentage like kept growing. And in uh, that year, 2010, you know, we had lost our our leadoff hitter from the year before, um, and you know, Madden was trying to work different guys into that into that position, and one day I I just walked into into the clubhouse, and I think it was actually at Yankee Stadium, and my name was at the the top of the roster, and you know, never didn't talk to me about it, nothing like that. Just the bench coach came up to me and and said, you know, like, hey, have you ever hit leadoff before? And I mean, never hit leadoff my entire life. It took the big leagues for me to hit leadoff. And uh, he said, you know, don't change a thing. We wouldn't have you in that spot if we didn't like what you were doing. So I just kind of kept with that approach all year long and, and just kind of stuck there. I'm here once again with John Jay. So a couple of last quick things. You're in Seattle now. Um, on the day we're speaking, you're in the two-hole. Um, you're not a power guy. Uh, playing in Safeco, it seems like you're the perfect guy in that lineup to hit near the top. Yeah, I think so. Uh, Safeco, which you know I've learned, and I think a lot of other players have learned, is tough, tough field to get the ball out of, and uh, and you know I, I think just with my approach, uh, you know going up there and being comfortable hitting with two strikes, and and uh, trying to you know have as good of a bat as I as I can, I think it kind of works into into you know that that spot right there, the two hole, and uh, you know I've got to see. Some guys, I mean Montero, he's he's got some pretty good pop, and he's got some balls out of there, some pretty impressive shots. So um, I think he's going to do all right there in that field. Okay, and one last thing, John. When I think of you, I think on base percentage. The other thing I think is uh, hiking and camping, which makes you a, a good Seattle guy. Yeah, yeah, big into the outdoors. Uh, I I bought a bicycle up there and I've already ridden it into the field a couple times um, from Bellevue and it's like about it's about an hour hour bike ride into the field and I mean I don't know I'm loving it I'm loving the scenery the mountains uh, you know Rainier is right there on, on my drive home from the field and and uh, it's a beautiful place it's almost like home so uh, I feel very comfortable there
John Jaso, as always, thanks a lot for your time. Thank you. My guest is Jeff Baker of the Seattle Times, uh, beat writer for the Mariners. Uh, Jeff, is this team trending in the right direction right now? Right now, as of the last three or four days, no. Uh, I think overall we're starting to get more of a semblance of an offense than we've had the last two years here. Um, you know, on an individual level, there's several players that are showing promise, that are, that are, that are showing some power potential, that are showing for stretches of games that, that they know what to do in a specific at-bat, they know how to work counts. Uh, from an overall perspective, though, I mean, this is still a team with a lot of uh, miscast characters, with a lot of people um, that are batting probably in roles that they shouldn't be batting in. Um, I, I'm sure the manager of this team, I know the manager of this team, would like to get a different lineup uh, than he has in there now. His hands are tied on, on multiple fronts with that, and, and we're, we're seeing some struggles. We're seeing struggles in the middle of the order. We were seeing some a lot of struggles up top. I, and we, this team is still prone to, uh, you know, to falling off its its approach uh, for, for mass stretches of innings at a time. So, you know, they haven't put it together, but they've shown flashes of being better than they were uh, the last two years, which, you know, they were historically bad for the last two years. So, I mean, they had nowhere to go but up, and we're starting to see some positives that way, but they got a long way to go. So if Eric Wedge has his hands tied, how much of that goes back to Jack Sorensic, or does Jack himself have has his have his hands tied as well? You hit it right on the head. I mean, you know, it always starts at the top. And if you get a payroll cut from, uh, you know, it was $95 million, $94 million opening day last year. It's going to be $82 million this year. Um, you know, there's only so many things you can do. you got players here. you got about five players tying up something like two-thirds of the team payroll, and anybody will tell you that that's usually not a good thing for most teams. You usually see that on very good teams, not on mediocre teams like this, not on last-place teams like this, and that's that's really hamstrung Zarensic's ability in the offseason. Um, you know, that, I, I thought there were a couple of mid-level free agents this team could have gone after that would have been positive additions to the team, somebody like a Josh Willingham. You know, they, they need veteran bats here to take some of the pressure off of some of the young kids and you've seen the young kids some of them start to show flashes and then they go off the rails for two or three weeks at a time a lot of them are trying to do too much they're trying to go up there and hit five run homers at times because there just are no veterans that know how to go in there know how to stay calm know how to uh you know ride out occasional slumps um the veterans on this team just aren't aren't pulling their weight. One of them's already been kicked out of the leadoff role, Sean Figgins. Miguel Olivo was starting to show signs of an offensive approach uh, for about eight or nine days before he got hurt. You know, the team would like him to do it, uh, preferably not waiting three weeks before that happens the next time. And so, you know, it's it's been an ongoing struggle. They didn't get enough veterans in the off season to help this team out. They probably could have done, you know, signed one or two free agents to mid-level money. Uh, but they opted not to do that, and they're paying a price for it. Kyle Seeger has hit well so far, but taking a look at the stat sheet, he's walked fewer than half a dozen times this season. Is I assume he has a big learning curve yet to hit big league pitching, I mean, just, I, despite the batting average? Yeah, no, I think that's something this entire team is going to have to do a little bit better. Part of the problem is, and it's not really a problem, it's part of the process that they're putting the team through right now. They're trying to teach this team how to attack first, how to go up there looking to hit the ball first, and then take walks as a byproduct of not getting hittable pitches. The problem 
with this team is they're still swinging at non-hittable pitches at times, and other times they're getting hittable pitches in a bat, and they're not in a bats, and they're not doing anything with them. You know, they're not they're not doing enough with those hittable pitches. And if you don't do that, then of course you're not going to get the hittable pitches after that, and you're, you're going to end up striking out or grounding out or popping out. And we've seen enough of that, and 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 that's part of the reason. Why, when, when you do something with the hittable pitches, you force the pitcher to come out of the strike zone. And then, when you do that, you draw your walks. They're not getting the walks right now because they're still not doing enough with the hittable pitches that they are getting. Uh, their batting average has gone up slightly, uh, but, you know, they're not, uh, they're, they're not drawing the walks that they could. With a guy like Seager, though, if he keeps hitting like this and he can do it consistently, because he still hasn't done that for more than a couple weeks at a time, he does it consistently, then he'll probably start to draw his walks anyway because the pitchers just won't come in the zone on him. And that's the theory anyway. And that's, uh, you know, there's a reason the walks have gone down on this ball club because they're trying a different approach than they have before. They're not going up there trying to work walks. They're going up there trying to hit first, ask questions later. And uh, right now they're just left asking a lot of the questions because they're not getting it done consistently. Yeah, once again, I'm here. Is that a long enough answer? (laughs) That's not bad, Jeff. I'm here with Jeff Baker. I'm amazed I can talk without taking a breath. One of the players that the Mariners acquired in the offseason is somebody who historically has done well in the OBP category, which is John Jaso. Is there a reason he is not playing more, hitting near the top of this lineup? The biggest reason is they wanted to get Miguel Olivo going. Now, you know, there's been a massive debate in Seattle about this, but the team likes... Miguel Olivo's catching abilities, and it's not something that you can measure statistically. We all know how, how problematic it is trying to measure catcher defense. We have a host of stats that try to do that. Not everybody can agree which ones are the most important, but the team feels he's the best guy that can handle a pitching staff five days a week. The problem is Miguel Olivo got off to a terrible start at the plate, uh, as he did last year. And last year, for a time, though, he picked it up and was able to hit home runs, was able to hit for average, was able to actually get on base. And then he stopped doing that because they played him too often last year. They played him 130 games a year. That's the reason they went and got John Jason. And, you know, what the team would like to do in a perfect world is get Olivo's back going, which it was starting to get going right before he got hurt, and then spell him more regularly with guys like Montero and Jaso as you get into the months of June, July, August, when players traditionally start to wear down and break down. Olivo wasn't going to break down in April. There was no need to spell him two or three days a week. They had to get his back going. They can't live with Olivo having a 229 on base percentage for the entire season. That's suicidal. They want to get him up closer to 300. They want to get him over 300. Uh... And and the best way to do that is just not to catch him 130 times a year. So early on, they were playing him every day to try to get his back going. It started to get going, and and I'm not going to wager this, but I'm pretty certain that had he continued hitting well for the next couple, you know, for two or three weeks afterwards, if he hadn't gotten hurt, they would have worked in Jason more regularly. They would have worked in Montero more regularly. And as a byproduct of his injury, they're getting to do that now. So when he does come back, if he can get his bat up to respectable levels, they will give him that day or two off as the, as the warmer months approach and catchers start to traditionally break down. And it's a complicated answer. I mean, it's, there's no black and white answer. But that's why Jaso didn't play as much, because they were working overtime trying to get Olivo's back going. He's, he's going to fight for playing time behind the plate here. They're not, you know, he wasn't reputed to be the greatest defensive player in Tampa Bay. They like his bat, and he's one of the options they have now from the, from the right side. Um... And, and they're starting to find out more about the bat. As far as the catching goes, you know, he's probably the third best defensive catcher on the team, and, and I, at least that's how they view him. 
and the Mariners probably do have the best defensive infielder in baseball. Can they afford to keep playing him every day? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, uh, we're going to have to come up with a statistic that can measure the, the, the break-even point. I know we have Van Graaff's war, which gives us some idea. We look at the, uh, you know, the UZR component. We look at the defense versus the offense. Uh, but we're still not able to pinpoint that defensive value uh, as certain as we'd like. And the one thing I can tell you, though, anybody hitting 140 in baseball is not going to be able to stay in a lineup very long because it's the equivalent of throwing a National League lineup out there in the American League when you have a guy who can hit about the same as your average pitcher. And so that's a consideration. I mean, you, if, you, if you downgrade from outstanding, you know, fielding Bible-type defense to just good defense, you know, is it really going to kill you if you're, if you're up in the batting average by, by 150 points? So that's something that they've got away. But I, I don't know of any player in baseball yet who's been able to stay in a lineup every day with, with a 140 batting average. And I don't think that Brandon Ryan's going to be the first. If he is, we're going to have to rename it the Ryan line. Uh, we'll, we'll make it 150. A 150 batting average will be the Ryan line, and that'll be the new line other than the, the Mendoza line at 200. Yeah, a key player on this team is Ryan's double play partner, who is not yet hitting the way people expect Dustin Ackley, uh, you know, he's a second-year player. There's a reason they call it the sophomore jinx. And, and, I mean, it is technically his first full year in the big leagues, so that's adding to the difficulty because he's never broken camp with a team before. Uh, you know, the intensity level is a little bit different. He didn't take everybody by surprise this year by popping in in the middle of June. And, and he's got some adjustments he has to make. Uh, you know, pe- people are watching footage of him. They're figuring out his weak spots. They're taking advantage of it. And he's got to, um, you know, make adjustments. The other thing he's got to do is stop putting so much pressure on himself. Uh, you know, he's like anybody else. He hears what people say. He reads the papers. Um, you know, he reads the Internet as well. These, these players all do, even though they never admit to it. Uh, and, and, you know, he, he knows that he's the man. He knows that he's the, the hope of this team. And that, that's a lot of pressure for a young guy to carry. And that's one reason they want to have veterans who can carry the load here so that Ackley doesn't go out there every game squeezing the bat and thinking he's got to do it all himself. Uh, he seems to have taken very well to the leadoff spot. Um, and, and, you know, I, I see the team leaving him there for the, for the foreseeable future because he's hitting... Uh, he's, he's getting on base at a 400 clip, and that, that's loads better than the team's been able to do uh, lately with either, either Sean Figgins or, uh, or Ichiro last year. Do you see the team trading anybody this season, and should they? I, I definitely see them trading some people. Uh, Brandon League would be the guy who first pops into mind. Uh, you know, he's become one of the, the game's better closers. He's not... I wouldn't say he's an elite closer yet because he doesn't work multiple innings. He's not a guy that they, they're com- comfortable bringing in in the eighth and then working in the ninth as well. Um, you know, and until he can do that, you can't call him an elite closer. But he's definitely one of the better closers, and he'll be one of the better closers available at the deadline. Uh, they've got some arms already in the bullpen, guys like Tom Williamson, guys like Steve Delabar, who are closer candidates. They've got a guy named Stephen Pryor down in AAA, who uh, I think we will see in the big leagues by midsummer, and that's another guy that can slot in there, if not at, as the closer, at least as an eighth-inning setup type um, depending on how he responds when he comes up here. So, yeah, they've got they've got room to get rid of Brandon League and, and, and get something back. There's going to be demand for closers. There usually is at the deadline. And so uh, he, he's making $5 million this year. And, uh, you know, after that, he's... Uh, uh, I'm trying to think of what his eligibility is now, if he's here next year or not. I think, I think this might be his final year. 
with the club. Uh, so it makes the most sense to trade him. Uh, and then you've got older guys that, you know, guys like Kevin Millwood, guys like, um, you know, Miguel Olivo, even if they're comfortable with JSO and Montero by midseason, that's a guy you could try to trade to somebody if he can get his batting numbers up to a respectable level. Is, Bra- is Brandon League the same Brandon League as last season, or is his velocity down a little bit? You know, they haven't gotten that much of an opportunity to test him uh, of late. And, uh, you know, I, I don't pay that much attention to velocity in the first month or so of the season because I, I know it can take pitchers' time to, to, to round their way into form. I have seen him uh, cough up a couple of games early here, and it takes me back to where he was a couple of years ago when he first came up with, with, the, uh, with the Mariners when he was an eighth-inning guy. And, uh, you know, there were some games that he coughed up early there, too. But then he kind of found his rhythm after a while and, and got going. I would like to see him get multiple save opportunities, uh, you know, within the span of a week. It, just with this team, that, that really hasn't happened um, all that often. So, uh, you know, I, I can't really get a good read on where he is right now. There's no reason why he shouldn't be the same guy as last year. There's no injury issues with him that I'm aware of. So I, I would, uh, you know, as long as he's got that splitter working, and he can spot the fastball, you know, he should be fine. Okay, and one last question. For him, command is a very, sorry to interrupt you, but for him, command is a very big deal. More so, I think, even than velocity. Uh, you know, because if he can't spot the fastball, then, then the splitter that he throws becomes more or less useless because nobody's going to uh, nobody's going to be fooled on it. They're just going to wait for him to throw something over the plate. And, and, and that's when he gets into trouble, typically, is when he doesn't spot the fastball. And he's had that problem in past years. Uh, one last question for Jeff Baker. Along with Ichiro, uh, King Felix is the star of this team. Does this team need those two players on the field? Can they afford to trade? This rumor has happened a million times. Will Seattle fans accept Felix leaving if that is the best for the team? It might not be up to them. It might be up to Felix. Well, it's ultimately going to be up to Felix. Um, I don't think this team is in a position right now to make the call on what it's going to do. I mean, you know, the easiest thing would be to offer Felix a multi-year extension at some point next year. I don't know that right now they're in a position to make that call. They have to see where their young pitching is in the minor leagues and how soon it's going to blossom and develop. And and the team's going to have to make an honest assessment of, of when it actually plans to seriously contend. I mean, you know, everybody talks about contending. The players do all the time, and it's no different on any other team. But realistically, in their heart of hearts, when does this team wake up in the morning on opening day and decide this is the year we're actually going to have a shot? We're going to be there right at the end. I don't think it was this season. I don't think it's going to be next season. And if it's 2014, then you can start to make a call on Felix Hernandez. If you realistically say it's going to be 2015, it gets a little more complicated after that because they've already used up, this will be the third year of Felix Hernandez's new deal, and they're basically using it up on a team that's been in last place and is still in last place as of this morning. Was that the best use of your money? To have an ace pitcher who wins Cy Young's on a team that loses 90 to 100 games a year, a lot of people will tell you no. And do they want to keep making that mistake going forward, or are they finally going to say, you know what, we're not contending until 2015, let's trade Felix now, get five players back in return, and then we'll really be able to go for it in 2015. And they have to make that call, and I think they're gathering information right now, and I think by this winter they'll have a much better idea. And uh, I'll tell you what, those rumors are only going to get stronger as, uh, as the years go on, because you look at the team right now, does this look like a team that's going to contend for anything this year? Not really. 
next year, a whole lot's going to have to happen for this team to contend next year. It's either going to be 2014, 2015, uh, where they can start seriously thinking about it, and that's the point where you got to make a call on Felix and say, is Felix going to be part of this, or are the five players we get in return for him going to be part of it? Jeff Becker, thank you very much for your time. Anytime.